Tim is your fiance. Who proposed to who? Uh, he proposed to me. So I had been thinking about doing it. I was going to do it for his birthday. And so I had been get, trying to get in touch with this jeweler who I met at a party. I met this jeweler at like a, a, an Oscar party that Elton John had. And he had on this ring and I was like, damn, that ring bad. Wow, look at that. I'm like, I can never afford that, but whatever. And so um, he said, no, it's not that expensive. Let me tell you, and I do it in Canada and whatever. And, you know, so I can get and I can get you diamonds at wholesale. And I'm like, OK, that's a lot. Fine. All right, whatever. And so I've been trying to get in touch with him because I was going to um, propose to Tim. And then he wouldn't return my call. I'm like, well, I'm Don Lemon. Why aren't you returning my call? And so, <laughs> so um, on his birthday, he proposed to me. He came into the room with the rings. And he said, oh, it's my birthday. I want to go. I want to do manicures and I want to do all these things and I want to go to brunch. And I'm like, okay, fine. Okay, fine. Okay, fine. 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 It's your birthday. Because I hate getting out of bed like until to the crack. Of, I'm out the crack of noon. That's when I get up. So he comes in with the the dogs and he said, have you seen the new dog tags? And I said, no. And we had two dogs. Now. And on the tag, it said, daddy, will you marry Papa? <laughs> Because to the dogs, I'm daddy and he's papa. Like, we have to make a distinction. And I look and I'm like, what? And I said, are you serious? And then his lips started trembling and he got down on one knee and he had the ring boxes. And I'm like, oh, shit, you're serious. Whoa. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, this is weird. You know, the whole, like, <laughs> nervous thing. He got down on knee, asked me to marry him. And I said, yeah. And then, you know, it was on. Then I was like, close the door, put the dogs out. Let's do this. <laughs> As he walks in now, Tim, we're talking about you. Come say hi. Anyway, so yeah, so that was it, and I said yes. Don Lemon is the sort of news anchor who wears his heart on his sleeve. You always know how he feels during the Trump fiasco. I would turn to Don Lemon to see him smack his forehead or curse at the screen or just show his exasperation and his anger and his frustration with the insanity of dealing with Trump. And I was like, yes, here is a broadcaster who's giving us his real emotions. And I feel like I am in the same place as you. I feel simpatico with you because that is the frustration that I feel dealing with this person. He's a great broadcaster because he lets you see what he's really feeling. He's got a new book out called This is the Fire, a sort of memoir talking about race in America. And I've known him for a while, so I wanted to talk to him about being a broadcaster, about being an American, about dealing with Trump, and what he's trying to accomplish in this new book. You'll get half of this conversation for free for the whole thing, which is a fantastic 60, 70 minutes talking about his real life, talking about who he really is. Go to patreon.com slash show for just $5 a month. You can get our Friday Patreon exclusives and the full 60, 70 minute edition of our Wednesday episodes. And you get to help support our growing team and help us keep this show going. All right, let's get into it. It's Don Lemon, Mr. CNN on Torre Show.
Man, you, during the first year or two of Trump, you were giving me life because you would come on full of fire, kicking him in the face, all but about to curse. And like that level of passion, we don't usually, you know, because we're supposed to have some level of reserve. And you were like, no, this is racism. This is horrible. This is like, what is happening? And I appreciated the reality that you were bringing every night. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it. I mean, look, it's our jobs to point out the truth and not some sort of false, fake objectivity, but not to give, um, I believe, a platform to lies and misinformation and to racism. And, you know, so if, if, if not me, who's going to do it? I mean, there was a time when media was nervous about using the r word oh i know right even msnbc even the new york times and you were one of the first who was like no call it what it is it's racism i really i know it's um i know it seems weird but i think i opened up that space for a lot of people because after i said it i think people were like oh somebody said it so now i can say it i really do because no one and no one people were having trouble saying lie Yes. What? Yes. A lie is a lie. And when I when I opened up my newscast and I said the president has said uh, this is CNN tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. I, I, I mean, the guys in the control room, like behind the camera, were like, <laughs> you can see the camera going like, what? <laughs> well, do you get pushback? In the building, do higher up say, hey, Don? No, I think initially it was a little, um, I think it, it may be in a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe they said stuff, but no, not really. I mean, I've had, I've, you know, I've had support from, as far as I know, from management. You never know, but yeah. Well, clearly, I mean, you, I think you would know, uh, you know, you know, I know how that pressure comes down. Hey, you, you know, you can't say that you can't go quite that far, you know, and, um, you know, sometimes you'll have an executive producer who will shield you from some of that, but kind of let yeah. you know, like, let's not go all the way there. But it sounds like you got all the support to go wherever you wanted to go. Well, yeah. And I think, listen, I think timing is everything. I do think that we are, um, you know, we're kind of a, I think lately, at least, uh, uh, call it like it is no bullshit brand, which I think is, uh, worked. And, um, I don't think there was any other way to cover Trump. I mean, either you were going to go all in as, you know, as, as the right wing conservative media did, or you were going to have to, I mean, or you could go all in on like just completely criticizing him, but I don't think you had to do that because I think the truth ultimately was not on his side. So even if you just you know, fact-checked him or said what he's saying is not the truth or called out whatever it is that he was saying. Um, I think that that was, you know, it, it kind of helped us that you, that it was, you had to, you had to have a point of view. Yeah. There was no other way around it. Um, and so if you didn't, then you look soft. And if you did have a point of view, then you look like you were anti-Trump or that you were some sort of liberal, but and, and it wasn't true. You were just saying what he's saying is not true. And what he's doing is racist. And let me give you the evidence. That's it. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first 
true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Before Joy Reid, who joined the fray very in primetime recently, like you the, were the like only the black. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. We went to the same store. You you were the only black person in primetime in the major three cable news networks. Was mm-hmm. that? Did you feel pressure? Did you feel responsibility? Did you feel like I have to make sure that you know these sort of things are said because? you know, others are not going to say what I'm going to say? I think I had all of the above, Toure. I mean, uh, yes, I felt, well, one, I felt that I was, the number one thing is that I felt that I had a duty to the American public. And not not really just a duty to the American public. CNN is international. I had a duty to the world because, this, you know, he's the leader of the free world. Whether you liked him or not, he's the president of the United States. And with that role becomes, you're the leader of the free world. Uh, so I felt that I had a duty to the world to make sure that they that the world knew the truth, but a special duty to the American people because we needed an informed electorate because I think an uninformed electorate got us to where we were. Um, I have, of course, I feel a responsibility to black people always. How could I not? I'm a black man in America from the South who happens to be gay. That's a lot. And I understand that people have different expectations of me, certain groups, right? Black people expect me to represent all of them. Gay people expect me to represent all of them. Southerners expect me to represent, you know, the, the whole nine yards. And so I accept that. Um, so, but my, my number one duty and commitment, quite honestly, was to journalism and just to tell the truth. So it, um, telling the truth wasn't easy in the beginning because the truth was that he said and did and exhibited racist behavior. The truth was that he was lying constantly. And, you know, we had this, you know, we we grew up, I did at least in journalism and just as an American citizen saying, you must respect the office, right? Right. Regardless of who's in there, you must respect the office. But quite early on, He wasn't respecting the office. He, I realized that I had more respect for the office than he did. Than he did. So that sort of helped. That was easy. And I think the, the misinformation that he was giving during the campaign also eased it a little bit. But um, I realized that if I, because of what you said about being the only black person, if I didn't say it, who was going to say it? Yeah. I, I I know. (laughs) I I think we as people of color and as marginalized people, we recognize bullshit. Sometimes our bullshit meter goes off before our sisters Absolutely. of the larger um, community. It may not go off as fast. I, you know, I, I know in my work and in other black people, we've talked about this, that there's a tension between do I, am I a representative for black people? You know, or where am I a representative for myself? Like where I might disagree with black people. And I don't want to be just sort of, saying the ideas that black people want said just as a mouthpiece like i am an individual person we are not a monolith you know so where does that function for you where you're like okay i do need to say the ideas that i know the black community is saying and wants said but as also i have to be a journalist and i have to be me 
who is an individual within this community? Well, it's not for me. It's not necessarily that I have to say um, the things that black people want me to say. For me, it is um, is that I have I I grew up in America. I am an American citizen. I grew up here as a black person. So my perspective as a black person and my point of view is legitimate and valuable. And having grown up here and having um, and seeing life through the lens in which I see it. I'm going to have a certain perspective, which is okay to say, because that's what America is about. And that's what true diversity is about. So just in that living in my particular body, having the experiences that I have, I already represent what black people in America think. So it wasn't something like, well, I have to say this because black people, it's like, no, I have to say this because this is my lived and shared experience as a black American. So that part was actually quite easy. Um, and then, you know, once you start to do it, once you, you just sort of lean in. And I think actually Donald Trump helped us lean into that because all the people who were, especially his apologists and the people who were on conservative media, they just said and supported Donald Trump, whatever he did, regardless of how, what, what, regardless of the magnitude of the lie that he was telling it, telling or saying it, that he was presenting to the public. And so I said, well, if the person on this network can say what they want to say with impunity, <laughs> And why can't I, operating from a place of, a place of fact and truth, say what I want to say and give my point of view with impunity? And not necessarily opinion, but a point of view. A point of view is based in fact. Opinion is yeah. not always based in fact. So I gave my point of view as a man who is on network, uh, on cable news in primetime, who happens to be black and gay. This is my point of view through a fact-based lens. And then it just made it easier. No, he's lying. No, he's race baiting. No, he's doing this. No, this is what they're doing. This person is grifting. And, and, and it just became easier that, to do it over time. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. 
Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. I, I, I'm i sure that, that, I mean, like, it was like he was making news every single day, you know. He so I'm was? sure, yeah, he was. Like, he was saying no, or every doing single, something. No, seriously. Hour. Teray, you, you, you posted a show. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, like, you have your show already in the old days, right? That's what I'm saying. No, but it's so. I would sit in the chair and they'd say, Oh, he just tweeted something like, you know, talking about somebody's mom. I'm just making sense. And you're like, Oh, man, no. I mean, how are are you ripping up the A block like every day? Like, you know, we had it set at seven and then he wrecked it. Well, not every day. I think during the campaign, we may have done that a lot because, you know, you sort of want to cover the horse race. Uh, but then as it got, you know, more serious, you realize, OK, this guy is trying to shape the news and he's playing with us. And so what you what we eventually ended up doing was the most important story and not necessarily the story that he wanted us to cover by tweeting something out or saying something silly. Uh, and so we became quite adept at realizing what was bullshit and what wasn't, what was a shiny object and what wasn't and what was a diversion. Mm. Yeah. I have a I have a I have a sense that. The person I get on the air is very much the person I would get if we were, you know, like having wine on your couch or, you know, we're just hanging out, whatever. Like, like some people have like a persona that they go on the air with and then they're a little bit different off the air. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like the line with you is like non-existent. There is no line. I mean, look, usually people say, okay. All right, you ready, Don? You ready? Let's start the podcast, right? We didn't do that. I just started talking. I'm like, look at your hair, right? And we just started talking about, because that's just, there's, there is no difference. But I also think that that has been part of my success because people want, I realize people want authenticity. They don't want perfection. They don't want some guy saying, good evening, Mrs. Don Lemon, blah, blah, blah. They want to know by, the, by 10 o'clock at night, by the time I come on, people want to have, they want to hear my perspective. That's why they're tuning in. If they want a newscast, they could have tuned in, you know, the 23 other hours or 22 other hours of the day on any other network. So there was a reason that I was that I had an audience and that um, and that I was successful. And that was because I was being me. And, and yeah, there's, there was there were times when you would like pause or kind <laughs> of like, so, you know, face palm. And I'm like, he's off script because he's just like, I, I am exasperated by this just yeah. as you are. I am stressed out by this just as you are. And like, yeah. I, words cannot convey. Yeah. And I would sometimes I would say, let me stop before I lose my job. <laughs> and, then, and then Chris or someone would tell me and say, you're not going to lose your job. You're speaking for the people. And even some, sometimes my bosses would say that. And, you know, look, there, I know. I can't go too far. I mean, I am on television. There are certain standards like, you know, I can't talk about somebody's mama or say a bad word or, you know, right. yeah. You know, it's like, what's up? Yeah. Like I can't really be in the barbershop. I can be in the barbershop, but I can't use the exact language 
that I would use in the barbershop, but I can certainly use the same body language and inflection and that goes over. But the one thing I did realize when you, I'm sure you know this from doing your podcast, but when, you know, when, if ever you come back, please come back. I know people are asking you to that silence and the pause can be more powerful than the actual words that you say. It can. And yet, in television, it's it's scary to I give know. them silence. Yeah, right? it's you scary want to fill every moment. Right, yeah. you want you want. There's got to be something going on every moment. But the thing I realize is that you know, when I turn to the television, like if if I'm watching a late night show, or if I'm watching a movie, if I'm watching whatever it is, is the thing when you go when you hear that chung chung and it's quiet, you're like, oh, what happened? What? Oh, 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 okay. And so I think that's it's attention grabbing. I don't do that on purpose, but I learned to be comfortable with the silence and the pause because I know it. Um, I know it works, and I know it's real. Yeah, yeah. I would tell you, but I don't think the folks realize the courage it takes to be silent for a moment when you know when you when you're the anchor and the expectation you're going to be talking and hosting every single second. Um, so you've written a really, really, really interesting book memoir that brings in modern American history. Um, I mean, continuing the, the parallels, your book is, this is the fire. When I was in college, I created a newspaper called the fire this time. So we're like, kind of like doing the same sort of thing off of Baldwin. Um, but you know, (laughs) you're, you're talking about speaking about racism to white people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone says there's a a word missing because the name of the book is this is a fire. What do I what I say to my friends about racism? And then when I spoke to um, to um, uh, Larry, Larry Wilmore, he said, did you leave out a word? (laughs) We started laughing. I I feel like white is assumed. Right. (laughs) Yeah, because but it's also when I speak to some black friends, but the conversation is different. Because because I think that, you know, most of us, as I said, we have a shared experience that we sort of understand. And there's a there's a mm-hmm, yeah, right. Oh, right. Yeah. No. Right. So I think the conversation I have with black people is like that. But the conversation I have with white people is like, oh, my God. Oh, no, I never had to think about that. My gosh. And it's real because they, they never have to think about it. So in the same book, I'm having conversations with many different people. The reaction is just different. And maybe how I sometimes would facilitate the conversation or what I would prioritize in the conversation would be different depending on who I'm having the conversation with. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive. 
T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Torre. Thrivemarket.com slash Torre. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamin, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you're taking on a mantle that I have that I, I I set a goal for myself to not do, and yet I still, I, I'm sure that I break it all the time. But I feel like trying to explain this sort of stuff to white people is a is an arduous emotional labor <laughs> that just wears us down. Yeah. And and it was the and I spent a lot of my teens and twenties doing that work with people around me, and it was the millennials who taught me that you can say, it's not my job to educate you, right? Gen Z did not say that, right? Excuse me, Gen X did not say that. Uh, Millennials were like, it's not my job to educate you. The information is there. You figure it out yourself. And I was like, whoa, we can say that? Right, yes. Yeah. But I used to say, when when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, and people would ask me stuff, and even in the 90s, and into I, my stock line was, look, I'm not the African-American authority. I am an African-American, but I'm not the African-American authority. But since you asked, I will tell you. But um, yeah, but now, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials are just like, you don't know, figure it out. And those are the people who are out there marching for George Floyd, marching for criminal justice reform, for equality, for equity. And, you know, I write about all this in the book. Everything that this conversation that we're having right now is a conversation, as you know, if if you read the book, um, is a conversation that I have with with the reader. Have you watched the whole George Floyd tape? Yes. I watched it. I couldn't finish it. I watched it from the very beginning. The first time I saw it, I cried. And then um, I said we had to run it because... Um, because I knew that it was a moment and I knew that it would lead us to an inflection point. It would lead us to, I I knew it was a moment that would lead people who wouldn't normally have empathy to a place of empathy for as much, as, as much, as much as empathic as they could be and, or empathetic as they could be. And, um, because, because we were all sitting around on our couches with nothing to do. Not knowing, like, am I going to have a job? Is this TV thing even going to be a thing tomorrow? Uh, Do I go into the office? Am I going to have a permanent home studio? Is it like, or uh, are my kids going to be in school? How am I going to pay the bills? Am I going to get COVID? Like all of these things in the middle of all of that, where you don't know what's happening, not even tomorrow, you don't know what's going to happen in the next moment because your mama could call you and say, baby, I'm sick. I got to go to the hospital. You don't know when you, and you can't travel to see anybody. So we were all sitting around feeling vulnerable, vulnerability. That's word. That's important word, feeling vulnerable. And then you see this man dying on your television screen or on your, your phone. And you're like, what the hell is going on? And there's no denying it. Everything that black people had been telling you about how police, how they're treated by police on the street, or sometimes random strangers who think that, who think that they have the authority 
of someone like a police officer and I think that they're a, an authority figure. They have an authority over you just because of their whiteness. Yeah. And yeah. so people got to see that on TV and they were like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This shit is real. I have let down my black friends. And listen, quite frankly, as James Baldwin said, I have some remember when he went to um, visit Elijah Muhammad. He talks about going to visit Elijah Muhammad and how it was it, just how tough that conversation and that meeting was. And then he came away and he said, I had, didn't have the nerve to tell him. But, you know, there are some black people I love and some white people I love in my life. Right. And so the white people I loved in my life were all calling me saying, damn, <laughs> we need your help. <laughs> And um, and the white people who loved me because if they didn't. And so they were all calling me saying, damn, what do I do? How do I talk to you? I feel like I've let you down as a black person. Like I didn't listen enough. I feel like I've let my other friends of color down. I don't want my kids to grow up in a world like this. I don't have the vocabulary to be able to talk to my kids. And then, of course, there's a big part of me going, well, where have you been for these past 30, 40, 50 years on the planet? Like. What, like, really? Like, because every single day, as I write about in the book, black people live in this sort of place that's like you're about to run a marathon. It's like ready, set, go. We live in the set. Like, we're always ready for something to pop off, whether it's actually, whether it's real or not. It is a real paranoia that we, that is just part of being black in America. And that part is real. So maybe someone is not discriminating against us in the store. But we live in a country where society is racist. So it certainly could happen. And so all of those things I started writing, and I'm like, look, let me just put this in a book. Because people really need to get this information. And so here it is. <laughs> How long did it take you? Not that long. I mean, it took because, and I'll tell you why. I wrote, a, I wrote a book in 2011. I wrote a book that was released in 2011. I said I would never do it again because it was really tough. It's hard. It's, it's hard. Well, it's, it's hard. It's like, and you know, you put everything out there. If, you really, if you're really passionate about something and it's something you want to get across. So you lay it all on the line. So I laid the L on the line with the first book. And I'm like, I don't want to do this again because everybody learned way too much about me. I'm on TV sharing like I'm gay or like all kinds of shit. And I'm like, wow, this is a lot. This is heavy. And so then I said, I, I wasn't going to do it. And then during the Trump administration, as you know, everybody and their mama was writing a book about Trump and their experience. And people were asked publishers, like, don't you want to write something like he's attacked every time he tweet about me? Hello, Don Lemon. This is such and such from this publishing company. Would you have you ever thought about? It? And I'm like, no, I don't want to be that attached or that close to this administration. And so I didn't do it. But then. As I started to think about my role in it, being at the matrix of what was going on in the country every single night, Teray, very fine people on both sides. I'm like, damn, this is not even coddling racists and, and, and anti-Semites and, and neo-Nazis or just flat out Nazis. This is condoning. This is becoming their imprimatur. This is giving them credibility. Absolutely. And so then after that, you know, that on it, you know, and then he kept on and on and on. And people sort of kept making excuses for it. And it was infuriating to hear the right wing media make excuses. Well, you didn't play everything that he said and the, and the sound bite after that. And I'm like, do you think what he said after that helped him? Because it was worse. <laughs> it made it worse. Okay. So then after that, Amar Arbery happened. And I'm like, wow, we just watched someone get shot in the middle of the street while jogging. And I thought about how many times I, you know, I called. 
call it real estate porn. I will drive up with, if there's like a for sale sign or construction, I'll drive up and I'll be like, wow, look, oh, they're going to put the living room here. Wow, this is nice. Right. And, you know, and, and look at, and, and no one ever, and my fiance is white, we just walk on because, you know, I'm like, oh, he's going on, I'm going with him, so I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> and so then that happened, and then Breonna Taylor happened, and, and, and George Floyd happened. And when George Floyd happened, I was like, okay. I've got to do this. And that's why, that's why I wrote the book. And so your question was, how long did it take? When I sat down after I saw that tape and I said, I'm going to write a book and I couldn't like hang out with my loved ones who usually come in the summer because this was happening in the summer. They couldn't come visit me because of all the restrictions. So I don't get to see my family except for Christmas and the summer. And they come out to my house in Long Island and we play, we have a great time. And you know that, and I go broke because I pay for all of it. Right. And so um, I couldn't do it. So I was like thinking about the, the world, what I had done, as you said, the millennials now are like, it's not my job. And we always felt like we had to explain everything. And sometimes we would like hedge and then pull back. Oh, I can't say that. And they're like, no, say it. So I, I felt guilty for the world that I was, I had helped to build that he was about to inherit my great nephew. And I said, the Fire Next Time is a book that I want to write, something like that. And I have a great nephew who is the same age as James Baldwin's nephew when he wrote his book. And I said, I'm going to sit down and write a letter to my great nephew. <sighs> Boom. And so, I, and so that part started to pour out. Um, I would take notes and call uh, my editor and collaborator on my, I, I, I traveled in a car two hours each way every day. I would go from Sag Harbor to CNN in the city, and then at midnight, go back to Sag Harbor. You wrote it in the car? In the car, like this, with the voice recorder. Blah, 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 blah. And you know what, such and such and such and such. And then I would send it, and I would say, and, and I think it should go this way. Wait, let's move this chapter around, move this sentence around. Um, okay, and then why don't you text me back, because I don't have a computer, so I can't really type right now. So, so largely dictated. Not, not largely. No, not largely. There was some of it I dictated, but I sat with this laptop in my lap writing stuff. And there was some, and I would, sometimes I would be laying, I got a bed that was like a, a one of those foam mat, those, uh, what do you call it? You know, the foam things that sure. shape to your body and whatever. I would, and I would be sitting in the back of the car with this computer writing. Not some of it was dictated, but not largely dictated. It was just, it, 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 it's 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 it, part of what's amazing about that. Um, you are tired. Folks don't realize you are tired after doing a show. Two the hours. Emotion, two hours. The intellectual energy. You, it's not like you're just sitting there. Like you are working, and you and your your adrenaline, and you're tired. And like to sit, think of you in the car for two hours, like. Like digging deep emotionally, coming up with this like, like when you're tired of having done the show, like that's a, that's really interesting that you're able to do that. Well, you know what the thing is is after the show, I'm not tired because you have that adrenaline. Still up. Even if even if you're tired, you're like I have this. I got to do something. I've got to expend this energy somehow. So in a weird way, it was helpful. Now going in, you know, every I was just like I can't do this because because I'm on with my EP and I'm blah 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 blah. And every then everyone, yeah. wow, I'm like we'll do something and i'll be like oh tonight i'm going to interview blah 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 um, that may be helpful for the book remember this on your way home like that sort of thing um and so that's what happened but uh, but yeah people don't understand 
Like it was hard for my fiance to understand. He's like, well, you have this great job. You go in, they put this makeup on you. Whatever. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, it, it is great. It's not, but it's also bitches. hard. Yes. But it, it's also it, like, we're sitting here just talking. So this is us talking podcasts on a computer. Like we're having, you know, just a phone call, right. With video. This is television. Wait, what? Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. 30 seconds to the break. Okay, great. Listen, hey, Trey, um, I got 20 seconds. Talk to me about something that's really, that will take you two hours really to explain, but can you give it to me in 20 seconds? Okay. Thank you, sir. Oh, and you know, by the way, what you said wasn't true because you said this back in, like, you got to know all your shit. So you're on. You're amped up and you're you're having, you're refereeing an argument that's going on because you do want it to be passionate and like, you know. Right. Um, it, it, it's, it's don't funny. take that the wrong way. Wait, I said that wrong. That's not what I meant. Last night I said this, but I really didn't mean. It. Look, I'm tired, y'all. You know. <laughs> and you could, and you, and and there is there is pressure. You're you're cool because you've done it every night for years and it's smooth. But you know, it's like okay, Don, we're back in 30 seconds, and I got to be like ready to go when thir- you know. And I might be high tonight. I might be low tonight. But like, I got to like bring that energy and like hit that note when they say. Three, two, they don't say the one. Right. <laughs> they point right. at the camera. You right. got to go. You got to be on, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the thing is, is that in your everyday life, I think what people don't realize is that you don't have, you, some days you don't have just great days in normal life. And imagine trying to do that on TV. And some, some days, like in normal life, like your mouth, your lips just don't work, where you're like, and that is, uh, what am I saying? So imagine like being on television and trying to have that energy and and make sense of every single moment. And you know what? I decided that I didn't have to. Like I could just like some nights I would just say, "I'm tired, y'all. I'm, re- I'm yeah. really tired. This is exhausting." And let me tell you why it's exhausting. And that just freed me up to be a human being on television. Yeah. Well, the 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 Trump administration was unusually exhausting for the country. In a way that Obama, Biden, even W was not at all. Honing. Um, I think I say it honed me like a fine diamond. Oh my God. I think the George, it's interesting that this book was inspired by the George Floyd moment because I think the, I've been thinking about why the George Floyd moment was different. And I think partly because it was a slow death, right? We've seen so many shootings which happened quickly. And television doesn't want to air somebody gets shot by a gun. So you're not going to run it over and over and over. Or or you're going to be like, and we paused it just before the place. Just before. But we'll let you hear it, right? Yes. Yes. So I think we got like one or two actual videos of Ahmaud Arbery. And and then quite, and then very quickly after that, the network executives and standards and practices is like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, that's it. No, no, no. We can't show that. I know you guys got away with it like at six o'clock and 10 o'clock last night, but it's a huge story. We got to figure out like how to, yeah. and which is right because you don't, you know, it, it becomes. But it sanitizes uh, it. It, it makes it, does, it easier to continue to happen. It does, yes. But also, I do write about this as well because I don't like exploiting black death so much that we have to, that in order for to be moved that we have to keep showing black bodies dying over and over on television. Yes, but we also, as a news media, treat the audience like children. Yes. And and like I tried to talk about this at MSNBC once, that if if you saw what war was really like 
bombs dropping on people's heads and and exploding and buildings going more americans would be like wait a minute yeah like we 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 are mad at iraq but we don't want war because we fully understand how war is very abstract to us yeah, yeah. go beat them up like no like atrocities happen like and and we don't show it you know or we show it from a distance where it can seem abstract listen i don't disagree with you i i think you're right but i do think that there's a balance i don't want to be exploited right um I don't want to exploit the death, but I do want people to see the reality. It is, it's the same tug of war that I have with the N-word, which I know that you've criticized me about, but I think we should- Ah, let's talk about but, it. But that's okay. I mean, but that, that's the whole thing too. Like people are like, um, well, such and such disagrees with you about blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, good, fine. That's okay. That's what life is about. Like, I, I like that. But um I think that as a journalist, if you're saying, you know, let's just say that the cop, whatever cop, calls someone the N-word on the street in, in one of these confrontations and struggles that ends, however, but in a bad way. And you say, and then the cop called him the N-word. That's sanitization. That's sanitizing because he didn't go, hey, N-word. He went, hey, Nathan. He said, hey, but with the R, with the hard R. Right. And and that if there is a difference, there's a certain um, reaction that goes along with that word. And I think it's the most powerful word in the English language. For more from me and Don Lemon, join us now over at patreon.com slash Torre show. If you care about getting an inside look on what it's like to be in Don Lemon's life or at CNN or just to be a broadcaster in the television world, it is definitely worth it. Patreon.com slash Torre show. Thank you so much to Don for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle Brenda Cox, Kathy F., Dr. Kina Murphy, Earl Dorsey, and Theo Tokis. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. <laughs> 